So every year, little confession. I'm Keith, by the way, if you are visiting us, and glad that you're here. Uh, little, little confessional about being a pastor for 18 or 19 years. Uh, when Easter rolls around, it is every week at the beginning of Easter, you're like, there's, how do you do something fresh and new? And, and so, and there's this weird, stupid, even in a church like ours, even a church like ours, where we don't kind of play, play by those rules, um, there sometimes feels this pressure. And I got up this morning, and I was just like, you know, this, this story just tells itself. Like, the, it's so goofy, the emotions that we go through thinking that we have to somehow manufacture something when we are celebrating the joy of life emerging out of death. Um, so, so we're going we're gonna to lean right in. I, I do want to acknowledge that sometimes we don't know what exactly to do with Easter. Because we got two types, of, two types of Christians in the world. We got the, the, the Easter Sunday Christians. All right? And, and so the, the Sunday people, yeah, the Sunday people are all about the victory. And it's super easy to relate for them. And I'm not being critical. It's just super easy to relate to the joy uh, and the hope of Jesus' resurrection. And you are ready to celebrate. And maybe you've seen like dynamic big changes in your own life that feel like resurrection. And, and in, it's easy for you to recall stories, right? And, um, and this Easter Sunday celebration, it just could not come soon enough. I saw recently a, uh, a, a post uh, or a, a church sign from, I think it was like last, the end of last week, like Monday morning on the, on the church marquee, and it was like, he is risen, and I'm like, no, not yet. <laughs> um, but anyways, so for some folks, this just is, the, the joy just bubbles up and it comes easy, and life conquering death is like your metaphor, it's your jam. Um, even if somewhere deep down, you, you know it might be a little messier than that, but joy is easily accessible. So then, then we got the Good Friday people. All right, so the Good Friday people are at the other end of our spectrum. The Good Friday people um, are people who, when they think about Jesus, the thing that resonates is death. And, and Good Friday folks, they, they want to follow Jesus and, and identify with Jesus' death, but they are so aware of their own pain or the pain of the world and its systems that it is overwhelming, right? And Easter feels like cheating, Right? You just want to shout, like, it's not so simple as the story makes it seem. Resurrection is great and all, but life is hard, and I don't feel the victory. And some of you are here just because your spouse made you, and you don't fit into either of those. Um, And we love you, too. But I want to invite us to encounter the resurrection again this morning in in a, a fresh light, and in something that hit me kind of unexpectedly the last couple of weeks as I've been thinking about this. And it relates to both. Okay? It relates to the dichotomy that we often think that we have to live with in this either-or mentality of what Jesus is all about. And maybe even what Easter Sunday looks like. Uh, so we've spoken for weeks about the healing stories of Jesus. All right? About how, in, as we've looked, and we've looked in all different Gospels for like, I don't know, six weeks, seven weeks. And we've talked about how in these stories where Jesus heals someone, we've looked at it through the lens of metaphor and said, how does this speak to how God is working and wanting to make the world whole? Okay? How did each of these stories, how can we see it from a light of representing something even broader than itself? Okay? So that's, 
That's what we've been talking about. And I believe that this ultimate moment in our faith this morning also speaks to many, many levels of healing. Of the wondrous and diverse ways that God longs to heal us and heal our world. So let's talk about the Gospels. I try not to play favorites, but it's John. <laughs> John is my favorite. And the imagery in John is just, it is so, it is so next level. Uh, so John's gospel, John starts his whole gospel by writing, and this was John the disciple of Jesus, who does not talk about himself by name, as we'll hear just a little bit later, uh, ever. He talks about himself as the, when, when he is mentioned in his own story, as the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, at best, this is an incredible first-hand glimpse of what someone felt like to encounter Jesus. At worst, it's a little snarky in light of the rest of the disciples. But we don't really know his attitude, so I'm going to give him credit for it. And say that it's just this wonderful experience of what it's like to be in the presence of Jesus, knowing that you, the only way you can identify yourself is the disciple Jesus loved. But anyways, John starts the whole gospel, his whole writing, with the same words that Genesis starts with, in the beginning. Okay? So John sets up his book, his telling of the story of Jesus, as a new creation story. A new world that is being formed in light of Jesus, all right? So these first words, in the beginning, lead to was the word, which then becomes representative of who Jesus was told to be. So Jesus comes into the world in the beginning at creation, but also then John tells this story as if a new creation is unfolding, all right? So what ends up happening in the book of John is that there are seven clear signs and miracles, okay? Exactly seven. No more, no less. It might surprise you to think that in the entire book of John, there's only seven miraculous moments. And they are clearly recorded by John, very intentionally, as signs that the kingdom is coming. Okay? He turns water into wine in, uh, in John 2. He heals an official's son two chapters later. Then he heals a man at a pool in John 5. He feeds the 5,000 in John 6. He walks on water. Also in John 6, he heals a man that's born blind in John 9. And then the final is the, the raising of Lazarus, the final sign, the seventh sign, Lazarus' resurrection in John 11. And then we pause and we get deeper into the passion story. But here's the thing, that number seven, all numbers in the scriptures mean a whole lot. And the number seven was the number of completion and wholeness. It, it mirrored the creation story. So, so the, the gospel writer John is creating this story that is saying Jesus is doing a work that is completing God's new creation story, right? Seven things. That's it. It's crystal clear. He calls them signs when he writes this, this story. The complete week, Jesus bringing God's fullness. Except then there's what happens this morning. And it's number eight. And it's supposed to be. And we are told right at the beginning of chapter 20 that it's the start of a new day at the beginning of a new week. If you're not sure if I'm telling the truth, I can read it to you. Early on the first day of the week. That's John 20, verse 1, right there. So, so dare we say, we are being set up in this moment to see a full new creation itself about to take place. And it begins where? Let's just take a look at John 19, verse 41. This is after the death of Jesus. Taking Jesus' body, 
The two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place that Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb which had, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Oh my goodness. So the first thing that we get is that we start this story in a garden on the first day of the new week of the new creation. Are you with me? Okay. All right. So then you heard some of the story, and let me catch up to where we're going to sit. Um, so while it's still dark, Mary goes to the tomb, all right? And when she goes to the tomb, she sees that the stone has been removed, all right? So she sprints back to thinking, oh my goodness, she meant to anoint Jesus, to finish what she couldn't finish because it was the Sabbath and she had to pause. So this is right after the Sabbath ends, and she thinks someone's taken the body of Jesus. Grave robbing happened at the time. So it was one of these things, I actually, someone else can do that research. I don't actually know the purpose. I just know that it was common from some of my research, but I don't know what a grave robber did by stealing a body. Some of you can do the research and tell me. I don't know everything, or even close. Sometimes it's good to make sure that you know that I know that. Um, I know that. I know you know that, but I know it too. Uh, so anyways, here's what happens. Um, so she comes running back to Simon and, uh, and, and John, the one Jesus loves, right? And she says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. She's freaking out. So Peter and John jump to action, okay? Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Okay, just a little, a little comic relief here. So just imagine John penning these words one day. Thinking back on the story. So, Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. You just imagine if, Peter, if John had a family, his kids one day reading this, and being like, are you serious, Dad? Did you really put this in? Like, I'm a running, we are a running family. So these are the kind of details that would work their way into our storytelling. My sons and ran, but the father reached the tomb first <laughs> until they got to 10th grade. <clears throat> <laughs> he bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go in. He was nervous and scared. Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Now here's what's interesting. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. We breeze right over that, but what that means is that if someone had taken the, the, the body and removed it, the, the linens would have just been lying in a pile. But what we are given to assume is that the imagery of the cloth and the imagery of the cloth that was wrapped around the head was in its exact same position, as if the body had just disappeared and vanished, right? So it's not that the linens were lying in a pile. They make, a, make it a point to say the head still was where the head would have been wrapped and the body was still the bo where the body would have been wrapped. This is very interesting. Because either someone would have, if it was official removal, they would have taken it together carefully with the linen around the body. Or if it was a grave robber, they just would have trashed everything and gone. So, it's confusing. Alright? This is just getting into the story. Sorry, we gotta, we gotta zip through this. Okay. Uh, finally, the other disciple went in, uh, who had reached the tomb first. There he goes again. And went inside. He saw and believed. But they still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. 
So they saw and they believed that something had happened. Who knows? We don't know what they believed. We're not told. Did they believe exactly that Jesus said he would rise and they just didn't understand that it was a part of the prophecy? Did they, did they believe that maybe he never really died, but then they would have questioned that because they tested it and there was no, no question there? So anyways, the disciples then went back to where they were staying because they didn't know what to do. No information. All right. So now Mary comes back. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. She's in despair. The one thing that she was hoping she had lost, to just even see Jesus' body, to properly create closure, to anoint his body with, with spices. And she bent over, looking into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. She doesn't recognize them as angels. She does not question what they're even doing there. She's just so full of despair. All she wants to do is find Jesus. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. So she doesn't even ask them. She's just so full of despair. She doesn't even say, do you know? (laughs) So for whatever reason, she just, she can't think about anything else. She turns at this. She turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? It's the same question. Woman, why are you crying? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. She doesn't think about how she's going to carry the body of a man back. She's just so desperate for answers. She's not even thinking straight. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, the name at this she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic Rabboni which means teacher there is so much beauty in a moment like this but over the years I've considered many elements of this story and this year there was a short phrase that I had never really sat with not really um, and it came to life and it's in verse 15 And it's this phrase, thinking he was the gardener. I mentioned earlier, the resurrection story, as John tells it, is the beginning of something absolutely new. That's why I'm so drawn to the garden here, and that's why I think it affects our lives. You see, we remember Jesus walking in the garden the first time. It happens in, uh, I'm sorry, we remember God walking in the garden the first time. It happens in Genesis 3, verse 8. All right? And did I put that on here? Okay. I'll read it to you real quick. Um, In Genesis 3, the first time that God walks in the garden is directly after the fall of humankind. Okay? So the first time that God walks in a garden and and encounters humanity is directly after the fall of humankind. And what is the result of that encounter? In verse 8. When the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Okay. First human encounter with the Lord after the fall of humankind leads to hiding because people are full of shame and relationship gets disconnected. Okay. The first Adam in the book that we have is a gardener who failed. That's what he's talked about throughout the New Testament. 
a gardener who failed at his task of caring for the world and maintaining the relationship with God, and the world becomes this wasteland of war and sin. But the hope was for a new Adam, and it began to come out throughout all of the scriptures. A second Adam to come, an Adam who would restore the ruined garden. It was envisioned in Isaiah 55, verse 13. You can see it up on the screen. One day, the prophecy said, instead of the thorn bush shall come up the juniper, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, there will be a better gardener at work one day. It's again echoed at the end of all things when, when, when the world is renewed and the kingdom comes in the book of Revelation. In chapter 22, on either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit producing its fruit on each month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of nations. Nothing accursed will be there anymore. <clears throat> the world is aching for a new and better gardener. I mentioned the first encounter. After the fall of humankind, humanity and the Lord meet and they hide. So what happens this morning as we watch the encounter with the Lord walking in the garden after the redemption of humankind? What does she do? Let's go back and find out. Next, ver next slide. Oh, actually... I'll just tell you, because it's right before this one. In verse 16, when Jesus says Mary, she turns and cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni, she oh, it's, it's, it's in the in-between. That's why it's not there. She lunges toward him, because the next thing that we're told by Jesus is saying, hey, don't hold on to me. <laughs> don't hold on to me yet. I have more work to do. But do you notice what happens here? Adam, the first Adam, he hides when he encounters God. But when the new gardener comes along, both, <laughs> both the second Adam and the Lord... Humanity is drawn toward and not away. It's a reversal of the experience of disconnection, and it happens in a garden again. So in verse 15, when we read, she thought he was the gardener, we quickly assume that Mary mistakes Jesus for being the gardener. But what if she wasn't mistaken at all? What if Jesus was on his knees when she turned around, covered in dirt, tending to a lily? What if she wasn't mistaken in any way? What if the reason that she thought he was a gardener was because, well, Jesus was the gardener? Maybe it's not an either-or reality, friends. Maybe the resurrected Lord who rescues the world from the power of sin and death in one moment is also the careful, faithful gardener with dirty hands and a humble face cultivating the soil for life that will eventually take root. Consider this imagery. See, Jesus is even planted in the very garden that he's tending. A very short time before his death in John 12, Jesus told his disciples, Truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus has died. Jesus has been taken into a garden. Jesus has been planted in the earth. Jesus emerges from the earth, and when Mary recognizes him a few verses later, a few moments later, he says that he must ascend. <laughs> he must continue upward and outward. And then actually in a few verses after that, in verse 21, he breathes on his disciples and he sends them out to multiply the seed of the Spirit and the kingdom of Christ that is now going to start bearing fruit in new ways. Paul actually refers in 1 Corinthians to Jesus as the first fruits of all who will be raised up. What Mary sees in Jesus is not a mistake. It's the identity of Jesus as a resurrected gardener. This is the image of God at work for the renewal of all things, cultivating life in all sorts of ways that lead to fruit. 
I mean, when Mary holds on to Jesus, it, he's almost like, Jesus is almost like saying, hey, you're acting like this is the end of the narrative, but it's just the beginning. I've, I've just sprouted <laughs> from the ground and, and just see what kind of fruit we're about to bear together. Just watch. Go tell the others. The story is about to begin. Our work is only beginning. See, it's not just the image that I want to encourage you with this morning. It's what that means for us to see Jesus as the resurrected gardener. Because Jesus invites us to enter into his resurrection. It gets back to how we feel complicated about the victory story at Easter sometimes, right? Because often, everyday life, it doesn't feel like this movie moment that we just captured. See, in this story, Jesus is not simply the victorious conqueror of death. He is the bent-over, tedious gardener. And hope and resurrection lies in both. When we begin to, to see that maybe the resurrected Lord is also the patient gardener, it changes perspective. Because there might very well be moments of bursting out of the grave in our lives. Darkness being overcome by light and life-altering moments. Moments of redemption and transformation. That's wonderful. But resurrection also looks like the long and tedious and painful often process of Jesus gardening our souls and tilling our world. It's hands-on. It's dirty. It takes committed work. It's slow. And it's okay if you experience Jesus as a gardener in your life. Uh, do any of you know the band AJR? Okay. I mean, I wouldn't either if I didn't have teenage sons. Um, so AJR is this three-guy band. I have a little picture. Um, they, they play this. They're, they're very good musicians, but, but they've got very unique songs. And, uh, and they have this song that went really big last year, and it's called Way Less Sad. And if you read the lyrics, it is a fairly depressing song. Okay? Um, and it's like... It, it's an internal conversation that he has with himself about feeling bad for dealing with his depression. And about how somewhere in his body, he's, he's saying, aren't you happier? Aren't you happy? Aren't you great? And he keeps responding as, um, no, I'm not happy yet, but I, I'm way less sad. All right? And, and, and this song is with trumpets, and it's this kind of upbeat celebration song. You know? And, and, and he's like, I wake up and I'm not so mad at Twitter now. Living sucks, but it's sucking just a little now. And it's, it's, this, it's this song that is very unique. And the whole point, the whole point is this guy who's saying, you know what, things aren't fixed. But it's okay for me to celebrate the little moments. Because I'm less sad today. <laughs> and maybe that's worth writing a celebration song about, even though things aren't fixed. And I think sometimes when we think that the, the resurrection of Jesus means that everything is fixed, then what it actually does is it pulls us away from the reality of Jesus' ongoing redemption. On a giant level, I do believe that what happened on the cross and what happened in the tomb fixed the destructive, condemning, damning power of death and sin and injustice once and for all. I believe that Jesus revealed God's heart of redemption and absorbed all of the violence and ugliness of the world without spewing it back in so it loses its power. I believe that God was not outside of Jesus in that moment because God just needed to kill something to make things right. I believe that God was in Jesus expressing the heart 
of a self-giving, nonviolent God who said, you can do your worst, I will receive it, and I will deal with it so that it does not have to cycle back again and again. And that truth and that reality changes our world now. But when we see Jesus as a resurrected gardener, we, been, we can embrace the fact that sometimes growth looks slow even if we know that there is life that's there. Sometimes it's almost impossible. You know, but the tiny moments matter, right? Jesus' resurrection it takes place in many ways. So it might look like that intense moment of miraculous joy and hope swallowing up death. And it might look like the gentlest tilling of hard soil. And resurrection might look like Hope that's kind of still invisible, and yet the seed is under the ground somehow alive, somehow growing. And resurrection might look like the little leaf that starts sprouting out of the ground and out of the soil, which is really vulnerable and is really fragile, yet it's green and it's full of potential. And resurrection might look like a wilted plant that has spent hours with the sun just beating down that gets watered once and in the morning. It's refreshed. And resurrection might look like a vegetable just starting to turn a new color, indicating health and hope. And resurrection might look like a plant bursting with fresh fruit, full of nourishment for the world around it. And resurrection might look like pruning, cutting off the branches that are not the most helpful in order to keep things healthy and growing in the right direction. Don't think that just because Jesus looks like a gardener doesn't mean it's not Jesus, the resurrected Lord. Don't think that because we've experienced Jesus in one way that he's not also doing it in the other. What hope? Resurrection, cultivation together. Jesus is the resurrected gardener every single time we honor the humanity of another human before being so quick to criticize. Jesus brings resurrection in, in us each time we trust Jesus for patience and gentleness with each other, with our children. Jesus brings resurrection in the tiniest moments where we make the harder choice instead of the self-serving, comfortable one. Jesus, when we sit there in silence with a friend whose loss will never be healed, and yet somehow that burden feels just a little lighter for them afterwards, that little tiny moment, that's life coming out of death. That's resurrection. Jesus brings resurrection when we notice our bias against another person because of their race or gender or orientation or financial status or job or age. And we pause and repent. That's a leaf breaking through the ground, life from death. Jesus brings resurrection when we forgive and when we receive God's forgiveness. Jesus brings resurrection when we finally surrender to God's purposes and start working to build his kingdom instead of just criticize all the people that we think aren't. Jesus brings resurrection when we release the self-condemnation that rules us and finally rest in grace. Jesus brings resurrection when we experience even a fleeting feeling of hopeful energy when it's been hard to even get out of bed. Jesus brings resurrection when someone else acts differently because they've seen us acting differently. The list goes on and on, but each of these moments of tiny little changes that look like God's hope for the world, they are how Jesus is the resurrected gardener. And do you know the beauty in this? When we understand Jesus as the resurrected gardener, we realize that the pressure is off. It's his garden. He cultivates. We just stay in the garden. I seem to remember a, a, a statement of Jesus that says, 
remain in me. I'm the vine and you're the branches, right? Like your job is just to stay close and stay connected and I will then grow fruit in you. I will help you be healthy. We keep our eyes on Jesus and we watch the magic happen. Just like when you plant something in the ground. I don't understand. I'm a bad gardener. My wife is good. I plant stuff in the ground and it just stays there. But, but Bethany does, and before you know it, there's stuff actually coming out of the ground. But, but these moments, this is what Jesus does, right? We watch the hard seeds crack and the ground slowly open. And we watch ourselves, as we keep our eyes on Jesus, becoming more full of love, more full of grace, more full of peace, more able to forgive others, more able to work for justice with a pure heart, more able to care about people genu- genuinely. And so we just... Keep our eyes on Jesus, trusting that Jesus brings life in every different way. This is what discipleship is. It's experiencing and relearning resurrection with Jesus over and over again. And this year, I want to encourage you to lean into that truth as a church, to be people who care deeply about discipleship, about learning to experience the life that Jesus, not just to come to a church service, not just to have good friendships, but to grow in imitating the character of Jesus. So that when we experience hard moments, when we experience friends who are having hard moments, our responses and reactions look like Christ and they feel like love. So my friends, yes, you are invited to dive into the hope of resurrection this year. All of it. The instantaneous love that absorbs sin and makes us want to clap and shout and yell and say yes. Um, And also the messiness of the long process that isn't flashy and doesn't even really fit in the language of victory. But it moves toward fruit and growth and healing. The resurrection of Jesus is a lifelong process for us. You are invited into it with each other. So we ask ourselves this morning as we fix our eyes on Jesus, what is Jesus growing in us? Where do we sense God cultivating our lives in ways that will set us free and bring light to our world. In order to respond to that, so we were talking, we used to, for many years, if you've been around for a number of years, we used to plant seeds um, on Easter morning out front. It got very dirty, um, but we liked that. So, so we used to plant seeds, and I was talking about that with my wife, Bethany, who is, if you hear anything insightful, usually coming from her. Uh, but but we were talking, and she's like, you know, well, yo, we shouldn't be planting seeds on Easter. We should be planting seeds like five weeks before Easter, and then they're coming out of the ground, and that's, or the pot, and that's what we take. And I looked at her and said, well, a lot of good that information does me now, <laughs> because it's Holy Week. Should have spoken up sooner. But, so, so anyways... I'm just kidding. I mean, I'm not. That's exactly how it went. But (laughs) so anyways, what we're going to do this week is something just a little bit unique. Uh, Every week when we gather, we share the table at the end of our service, at the end of our gathering, uh, where we we take the bread and the cup and we remember Jesus's redemption through his death, where Jesus shared a meal with his disciples and he said, take this, this is my body broken for you and this is my blood poured out for you. And we take the bread and the cup. And it's a practice of ours to move toward Jesus and be drawn to Jesus. But today, 
Today we don't remember the death of Jesus, not primarily. We remember the resurrection of Jesus and what it means in our lives. So we've decided to do something very unique and different. And what we have in just a few minutes is we have simple flowers that we created with a pin on the back. And we're going to invite you in just a few moments to come to the table to be moved toward Jesus and to hear the words, Jesus is the resurrection and the life and to remember the resurrected gardener. And so you can pick a flower and put it wherever you want on you for the rest of our morning and as you go out today. Um, you can pick a color that coordinates with your outfit. Um, but, uh, but we're going to do that in just a moment. And as we do it, uh, so, so Dwayne and Sabrina are going to come up here in just a second. And as we do it, there are two microphones in the back. Uh, and I know that this can sometimes be a little bit, you know, intimidating, but at the same time, there's something about us being a community together that is so valuable. So go ahead, Sean. Uh, so I want to invite you to think about this simple phrase. The resurrected gardener is growing blank in me. And maybe, and, and I just want you to think about what word or two words that might be. As you think about the hope. And maybe it's new life. Maybe it's resurrection. Maybe it's hope. It's fine if they overlap. It could be anything. But what is Jesus cultivating within you that when you think about the resurrection, it gives you hope? When you think about this story of Jesus being not misunderstood as the gardener, but maybe understood as the gardener. So what might you, what, what word or phrase might you put there? So anytime, as this is happening, the band's just going to play a bit, and they're going to play kind of quietly. And so as people come up at any time during this, this time when the band's playing, any time as people are receiving flowers, just walk to one of these back mics and just say, the resurrected gardener is growing patience in me, maybe. Whatever that might be, okay? And if you have another language that's your primary language, feel free to use that. So just take a moment. And first of all, just receive this story with gratitude. Go ahead, come on up, um, musicians and Dwayne and Sabrina. And you can just take and split um, the basket between your two trays. Thanks. And I'll receive one too, friends. Amen. And so... As you think, the reason that we have an opportunity to share that together is simply because we grow when we hear what God is up to in each other. And it's okay if this is a process. And you don't have to, by the way. You don't have to do that at all. You can just enjoy the joy of our final moments here. Um, but it's a process. But it's also a hopeful one. So I hope that you can lean into the hope that Jesus is bringing this morning. Um, and remember when Jesus said, I've come to bring life life abundantly in the book of John before this all happened. I've come to bring fullness of life now and forever. And we can lean into that process today. <sighs> so, um, you have permission to rest, my friends. Fully entering into the goodness and the beauty that today, this is bigger than anything else. Jesus came to bring life. Jesus comes to bring life. Lord, as we come forward as we receive the reminder of your hope of how you are growing something always in us and in our world. I pray that you would meet us exactly where we're at, 
whether that feels like tiny little incremental moments or moments of breakthrough and surrender in big ways. And help us walk away differently knowing what you've done and what you're doing. Amen.